0: you could turn to Philippians chapter 3, and as we uh, look at this text, I want us to remember the context of this particular text. Uh, Paul had been talking about the Philippians and himself, the Christians, as the true circumcision, which is a a statement of identity. And um, he gave them some warnings uh, about people who would corrupt them with a false gospel, and one of the things that false gospels produce is, false identities and so we're going to kind of he's going to develop that a little further and so therefore we are going to develop that a little further i'm going to begin again at, at verse one for uh, this context finally my brothers rejoice in the lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me but is safe for you look out for the dogs of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And we'll stop there. Heavenly Father, graciously open your holy and eternal word to us, poor people. And establish us in the knowledge of your will. And direct all who err in your word to the right way again. So that we may live according to your divine pleasure. And we ask this in and through Jesus Christ. Amen. I am, of course, the son of immigrants. And on my father's side... Uh, that's largely but not exclusively, as my wife will remind me frequently, uh, Italian, as is indicated by my last name. And uh, my best friend in um, kind of 8th through 10th, uh, 11th grades uh, lived just down the street, and he, too, was of Italian descent. And uh, we were interested in our, in our ancestry um, Our parents, as far as I know, didn't speak Italian. We ate a lot of Italian food, and my family had a book on its shelf that he and I used to look at quite a bit, and it was called How to Be an Italian. (laughs) It was a humorous look at How to Be an Italian, but we enjoyed it nonetheless. We could uh, make fun of ourselves even as we... Rejoiced in our entire uh, our Italian heritage, uh, something that in some ways we struggled to embrace. We did not go to the links of the young man in breaking away, uh, and if you remember that older movie from the 80s, uh, one of them was so engrossed with being Italian that he learned the language. Um, we didn't do that, and I kind of regret the fact that I've never learned to speak Italian. Besides. Uh, capiche and a couple other f- words that I picked up from the Godfather. Um, <coughs> identity. We all have a real identity. And sometimes we can be caught up in the wrong identities. And that is precisely what Paul is worried about as he writes to the Philippian believers. He's worried about them... Uh, taking the wrong identity, and this is all wrapped up in this discussion of uh, we put no confidence in the flesh, but there are those who do, and Paul is going to talk about that. And so the first question that ought to come to mind as we think about this, and as that. Paul is basically answering is, how is it that people put confidence in the flesh? What does that look like? I mean, he just threw that phrase out there, and now he wants to sort of explain all of this thing, because the opponents, the the look out, look out, look out, the people that he was wanting them to look out for were putting confidence in the flesh. Then Paul does Something amazing and uh, that some people don't, don't understand. He says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. And he even goes to the point where he says, I have even more reason for confidence in the flesh. <laughs> Interesting in the world does he do this? Uh, What is going on with this apparently contradictory statement to what he has just made? And I think to understand why he goes in that particular direction, we have to get back to Proverbs, particularly the 26th chapter, verses 4 and uh, 5. "'Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself.' But then the key phrase, the key response to that, the counterbalance to that, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And so uh, Paul is here answering the fools according to their fool's folly. He's answering it as if this was true, so the other person can see the folly of their viewpoint. And so... He's trying to one-up them, in a sense, and I'm reminded of a very old Saturday Night Live sketch. This is so old, I can't find it on YouTube. So I can't remember all the dynamics of it, but I remember it as, Kien es más macho? Clint Eastwood, oh, Ricardo Mataban. And I think Ricardo Montalban must have been the guest host that week because I think the answer every time was Ricardo Montalban, who in my mind is not incredibly macho, but uh, probably adds to the humor of it. He's kind of doing this thing. Who's got more basis for righteousness? And he's pointing to the fact that if you're going to boast in the flesh... Paul has more reason to boast in the flesh. He's not saying that it's good to boast in the flesh. He's not saying it's right to boast in the flesh. But he's saying, if this were a theoretically right thing to do, I have more reason than them to boast in the flesh. So Calvin here notes that Paul is not arguing out of envy. He's not denying the the basis, or rather the, the reality of these things, Okay, he's saying, rather, he's not saying, let's not boast in circumcision because I haven't been circumcised. He's not saying that they shouldn't boast in these things because Paul lacks these things. Paul has all of these things, and yet is saying, we boast not in them. Paul displays the confidence that he used to have, but he has since found to be useless. And there's more on that next week. Paul is doing something that he did actually fairly frequently uh, because the Judaizers were such a problem to the church. We see him doing it in 2 Corinthians 11. We see him doing it repeatedly in Galatians. We see it uh, at times in the book of Acts when he's making a defense. He utilizes uh, this to show that the problem is not that he didn't have these things, but these things were not what mattered. And so he lays out these things, and he begins uh, there's four things that that I want to look at initially that he circumcised on the eighth day in keeping with genesis seventeen okay he was not like moses 's son that we read about that 's how serious uh, the the older Jews took this uh, this view of circumcision precisely because uh, Abraham, uh, sorry, Moses was almost killed because his son had not yet been circumcised. It was serious business. It was important. And Paul recognized this and he says, I was circumcised and not just at any particular time, but in full accordance with the law on the eighth day after I was born. He was marked from birth. Not only was he circumcised on the eighth day, but he was obviously, therefore, of the people of Israel. He was born into what we might call Jewish privilege from a religious viewpoint. Paul is not saying that we shouldn't boast in circumcision because he's anti-Semitic. Paul wasn't. He fully embraces the realities of his Jewish heritage. He's not living in rejection of his Jewishness. But he is, so to speak, according to the opponents, he's of the right bloodline. But not only is he of the tribe of, sorry, the, the, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, he's from the tribe of Benjamin, which was the only tribe that was faithful to the Davidic line and to Judah. Okay? And the nation of rebels, <laughs> after the death of Solomon, Benjamin was the faithful tribe. Not only that, but of course Jerusalem was found within the, territory, the, the tribal uh, land of Benjamin. We often think of it as part of Judah, but it was just across the border in the land of Benjamin. Not only was he circumcised of Israel, of Benjamin, but he says that an interesting phrase for us, a Hebrew of Hebrews. This is a, a, a phrase that was used to indicate that, that he was one who spoke the language, one who lived the culture. He was not Jewish in name only, but he was an enculturated Jew. A Hebrew-speaking Jew, not a Hellenized Jew. He was the real deal. He was not a Johnny come lately with regard to Jewish faith. What all of these things have in common is that they are advantages that came with birth. Uh, they were something that he had no control over. Okay? And yet, what we find is the flesh still boasts even about things it has no control over. Not because Paul is boasting about these things, but because the Judaizers. We're often boasting about these very things. Part of the deceptive nature of our sinful nature is uh, that religion can easily become about one's genetics, about one's birth, and not about faith in Jesus Christ. When I was a uh, brand spanking new Christian on the campus of Boston University, I thought it would be wise to take a course uh, in the New Testament. I wanted to learn more. Um, Little did I realize at the time that of course BU was the school that produced, um, well, that's where Martin Luther King Jr. got his PhD. And it's also where Steve Brown, before he was converted, got his PhD. (laughs) So Boston University has some interesting uh, connections to history, um, but not necessarily the most orthodox religion department in America. And I was, the, I was in a sense, um, probably this, the pupil that my professor liked the least. She, because in part, she said she was a Christian because she was an American. Really? Is that how one becomes a Christian? But we saw the same thing. My friend and I, growing up in southern New Hampshire, we're Italian, and therefore we are Catholic. Okay, We don't realize, that, of course, that there were many Protestant reformers uh, that were from northern Italy and things like that, like Peter Martyr. But nonetheless, in our minds, we're Italian, therefore we're catholic and in fact one of the great um our dad grew up in lawrence mass and one of the the great celebrations in lawrence mass is the feast of saint anthony and there's like a big parade and street vendors and all of this kind of a huge deal for the italian american community and lawrence mass still to this day uh, a big deal for the italian american community there Identity and confidence before God can easily become built on our ethnic or cultural background. It's the air we breathe, and we can confuse it with faith we can confuse it uh, with a vital relationship or the basis of our relationship with God. Ethnic or cultural background uh, often then becomes the reason for excluding other people from our community. For instance, there is the joke, and it goes around my house fairly often, if you ain't Dutch, You ain't much. And we use that as a joke. But the reason the joke exists is because of the ethnic prejudice of the Dutch community in America, such that the Dutch Reformed Church was very inbred. The reason they grew was making babies, (laughs) okay? And, and maybe, maybe finding the five Dutch people who weren't in the church. Because their whole identity was wrapped in being Dutch. And if you weren't Dutch, you really didn't quite belong in that community. And it was, that was used to exclude, and that's one of the reasons why the Dutch Reformed church began to shrink because oftentimes their children decided that there was something good in addition to being Dutch. But let's not just pick on the Dutch. One of the things that I struggled with in my prior denomination is what we called the Blue Bloods. They were the people who were born and raised in the ARP church. I was a Johnny-come-lately non-Blue blood. And the the sense that a lot of us non-bluebloods had was that the positions of power and prestige would be closed to us because we were not born and bred ARP people. We were not bluebloods. So it's not just the Dutch who have this problem. It's a human problem. Our righteousness is not to be found in rites that we've undergone. It's not to be found in our, our bloodlines, you know, taking your DNA test. Your righteousness is not found in the, the culture that you were a part of or that you embrace. And in fact, you cannot glory in Jesus Christ while you simultaneously glory in those things. You cannot glory in Jesus and in rites. You cannot, and I mean that R-I-T-E-S, just to be clear. You cannot glory in Jesus and your bloodline. You can't glory in Jesus and your culture. That's what Paul is getting at. It's glory in Jesus. We are the true circumcision if we glory in Jesus and not in those things. And so false identities rely on hereditary privileges or advantages instead of relying on Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Now, anticipating where Paul is going to go here, are false identities only found in these hereditary privileges or advantages? And what Paul says next means, No, (laughs) they're not found only that way. Paul had not exhausted this subject of of, um, putting confidence in the flesh, nor had he exhausted this subject of his supposed grounds for confidence in the flesh. He continues, and part of what sets this section off from the other section is this phrase that is repeated all three times, as to or according to. Okay. The first of which is, as to the law, a Pharisee. You see, Paul was part of this group that had a very conservative, which was good, generally speaking, interpretation of God's law. They recognized the reality of the resurrection. They they recognized the reality that there were other spiritual entities. They were angels. They were demons. Okay? They were, in many ways, incredibly conservative and on on track with what we would uh, think in a lot of ways. Okay? Paul experienced this. Though born in Tarsus, he was sent to Jerusalem to study at the feet of the renowned Rabbi Gamaliel. Gamaliel, who we find, uh, in the, back in Jerusalem, in the early parts of Acts, uh, warning the, the leaders about being too rash with this new group of people called the Christians. But we also see in Acts 22, Paul affirming in one of his boasts, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, referring to Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are to this day. And so Paul said, you know what? From the beginning, so to speak, I was a Pharisee. And it didn't have the negative connotation that it does in our circles. And those circles, that's a positive. Keep that in mind. He shared, because of the the reality of being a Pharisee, he shared a great concern for ritual purity, a great concern for the food and Sabbath laws, and demanded similar devotion from other people as a Pharisee. Paul continues, as to or according to zeal, a persecutor so zealous for his heritage that he persecuted the early Christians as traitors. He spoke murderous threats about them, but he also arrested them and put them in prison so that they could be killed. He also held the coat of those who stoned the first martyr, Stephen. No one, none of those Judaizers, could ever question the zeal of the Apostle Paul. When you're willing to kill somebody for your ideology, no one can question your zeal. They might question a lot of other things about you, but not your zeal. We see Paul talking about this. It happens in Acts 9, and Paul will repeat it later on when he's uh, defending himself before uh, the, the magistrates. But falling to the ground, Paul heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So we see that one of the things that false identities, that a false uh, connection with righteousness does, is it tends to seek to destroy those who don't share those identities. Paul saw these people as traitors to the faith and therefore sought to destroy them. The flip side of this. is that if you don't share that identity, sometimes you want to destroy those who do. I had The years I was on the bus, middle school, were the hardest years of my life. And uh, there were a number of reasons for that. But there were some kids who lived on the, uh, the next street over all the way down. But they were at our bus stop. And maybe it, was, maybe it was because I was in the, uh, the higher level courses and they weren't, I'm not sure exactly what it is, but they didn't like me. And the thing that they zeroed in on was my greasy Italian hair. And that's what I heard all the time was about my greasy Italian hair setting me apart in this instance, in being the wrong ethnic group and using that to ostracize and to humiliate, that's what the flesh does. That's what fleshly confidence does. Paul continues as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Mighty bold talk, right? Paul wasn't saying that he was perfect, but he is saying that his behavior was exemplary. There was no reason to bring Paul up on charges with regard to his early life. Uh, He walked in accordance with the law, and part of what the law includes is sacrifices for sin. And so it's not that Paul was sinless, but he made the proper sacrifices. He didn't commit any of the biggie sins, okay if you view it as an ex, from the external perspective which is what the pharisees tended to do but what these three things have in common is that they're all personal achievements rather than privileges they're not something he received from birth but something that he accomplished subsequently paul is not arguing against confidence in the flesh because he has no accomplishments, he argues for it despite the fact he got accomplishments. Whether you measure it by the law, you measure it by zeal, you measure it by righteousness, Paul had accomplishments. We tend to build False identities, a false righteousness on our achievements. And when we exclude those who don't have the same achievements as us, um, and therefore we end up making a lot of comparisons with people. For instance, if you build your identity on the fact that you're an A student. What happens if you don't get an A? And here we are on this, you end up on the seesaw. If you keep getting the A's, you are filled with pride and placing yourself among others who don't have the academic achievements you have. But if you get the B, or (gasps) maybe you weren't feeling so well that day, a C. Despair. Because now your identity has been removed from you. And so when your identity is on any accomplishment, that's always a risk. You can stop being what your accomplishments say you are. And then you're filled with despair. That's part of why Paul later in Ephesians will warn them that it is, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's, it's not of your zeal. It's not of your righteousness. It's not about the law. It is a gift of God, not a result of works produced by the flesh, I might add, so that no one can boast before God. And so our righteousness isn't in uh, position, it isn't in zeal, it's not in obedience. Because, again, you can't glory in Jesus and simultaneously glory in those things. You cannot glory in your righteousness, in your position, in your zeal, in your obedience, and also glory in Jesus at the same time. Frequently I'll mention both and in some argumentations. This is not a both and. This is an either-or. And so false identities rely on personal achievements instead of relying on Jesus Christ. From there, there's a sort of a third question that's not answered directly by this text but is sort of behind all of this in a larger aspect of, of of scripture. What is the danger of these false identities? Why does this tend to upset Paul so much? And we're going to answer some more of this next week when we continue his line of thought, but I, I wanted to draw out some other things this week. And that Paul is afraid or concerned that these issues will tear the church in Philippi apart. Because likely in the church there will be some who embrace these um, fleshly confidences as well as those who reject those fleshly confidences. And that will inevitably result in disunity and division within the body. You see, the Judaizers are, in a sense, the antithesis of the gospel humility that we spoke about from chapter 2, because they're making their interests paramount, as opposed to the interests of Jesus being paramount. They're neglecting what we see in Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says that Jesus himself is our peace he who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, which in particular Paul talks about, between Jew and Gentile. And so what Paul says there in Ephesians 2 is that Jesus has made this distinction, this fleshly confidence of Jew and Gentile obsolete by tearing down this wall by becoming our peace with God and with one another. And so if we're in Jesus by faith, we have peace with God, and we're also intended to have peace with one another. But what the Judaizers are doing is rebuilding the wall of hostility, saying, you're in, you're out. That's what he's doing. Uh, sorry, that's what they're doing, and that's what Paul is. That's why Paul is so careful to warn them three times about these people. Jesus is our peace, but the Judaizers want to rebuild the walls, claiming that one must become fully Jewish in order to become a real Christian. Excludes those who are really. Christians, just not Jewish. read an interesting, um, I guess, op-ed, informational piece in World Magazine a couple of weeks ago, and being Italian, this stood out to me. The Immigration Act of uh, 1924, also known as the Johnson-Reed Act, uh, put a ban on non white immigrants and decreased the number of immigrants permitted from southern and eastern Europe. Europe. So, uh, you could reduce the number of people who could be Jewish and enter the country, as well as limiting the number of people who could be Arab and entering the, com- the country, but also, southern Europe includes Italy. There were too many Wops and DAGOs in the country, and they wanted to get rid of them. It also excluded Asians. This was a real immigration act, excluding people who aren't like you for no basis exi- except from the fact that they're not like you. And churches can do that sometimes. The interests of ethnic and cultural background, the interests of achievements, uh, can easily eclipse Jesus' interests. I'm currently reading uh, Tim Keller's new book on Jonah. And it's, well, oh man, why didn't he come up with this like a, a, a year or two ago? Um, and so... After I wrote my sermon, I read this chapter, um, and he mentions Jonah. He says, when loyalty to his people and loyalty to the word of God seemed to be in conflict, he, Jonah, chose to support his nation overtaking God's love and message to a new society. And the very reason that Jonah is in The canon of Scripture is because it was not simply a Jonah problem, it's a human problem. We're all susceptible. If our righteousness is in our privilege or in our achievements, the question should be asked why did Jesus come, obey, and die? The reality of the incarnation, of the active obedience of Jesus Christ, of his death upon the cross, and his subsequent resurrection indicate to us that any righteousness that is built on privilege or achievement is null and void. It's gone. It doesn't matter. So we see in the Old Testament circumcision a big deal such a big deal moses almost died but then we go on the other side of the cross we find during the the in acts 15 at the jerusalem council they're saying the gentiles don't have to be circumcised to receive the grace of god what they need is jesus christ and how they get him is not circumcision but they get jesus by faith Not by being born in the right household, but by faith in Jesus Christ. The Jerusalem Council rejected all of the wall building that the Judaizers wanted to do. They reaffirmed the reality that there is just one church, and all who are in Jesus Christ are part of that one church. Church. They would re- embrace the subsequent Revelation 5 vision that John had of every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every language. There are people from those groups that Jesus has won with his, bought with his blood. It is something that we affirm in our creeds. It is in both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. We believe in the Catholic or universal church. We do not believe in the Dutch church. We do not simply believe uh, you know, in the Italian church or uh, the white church. The Catholic church that transcends all the geographic and ethnic cultural boundaries we might imagine. And if we make policies that violate that, we are sinning. Jesus is building one church. He's not building groups, uh, you know, churches for different groups. And it could be, you know, let's let's play. It's one for the whites, and one for the blacks, and another for the Asians, and then you have the uh, Eskimos, and there's one for the Arabs. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's gathering them into one body. Not one for the engineers, one for the accountants. Uh, one for the neither or, (laughs) the teachers, okay? That's not what Christ is doing. But he's gathering those people from different accomplishments into one body for his glory. And that's why Paul can say in Colossians 3, here there is not... Greek or Jew circumcised and uncircumcised barbarian Scythian slave free but Christ is all and in all and similarly similarly in Galatians 3 there is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free there is no male or female for all are one in Christ Jesus the one church connected united to the one Jesus. And so Jesus builds his church not based on privilege, not based on accomplishment, but based on his mercy. Privileges and accomplishments can be enjoyed. Listen to me. I don't have to renounce being Italian in order to be a Christian. Okay? What I'm saying is. My righteousness is not found in being Italian, however much I might actually be. But it's far more than Elizabeth Warren. I thought that was a better joke. I guess not. But do you understand? You don't have to hate the fact that you are X, Y, or Z. Paul's not calling the Jews to hate their Jewishness. Paul didn't hate his Jewishness, but what he said is, I'm not going to make my Jewishness be an obstacle in fellowship with other Christians. I'm not going to use it to deny that they're Christians or to deny fellowship with them as Christians. And neither did he allow his accomplishments to put up boundaries between himself and and other Christians. That's the point. I'm not calling anyone to be an Italian hater, an American hater, or any other kind of hater. But to recognize that what matters in terms of our identity is our union with Jesus Christ. Those things do not make us righteous, they aren't the boundary markers that matter. Jesus is the boundary marker that matters. And so the danger is that false identities rebuild the walls that Jesus tore down in his death and resurrection. So, what's the point of all this? Again, the flesh wants to build an identity for you apart. From Jesus Christ. And often that identity, that false identity, is rooted in your ethnic or cultural heritage or rooted in your achievements or both. Being Jewish, Italian, or American becomes the reason that God answers your prayers. Being a Pharisee, a Presbyterian, or a church officer gets twisted into the reason that God loves you more than he loves someone else. Before Paul gets to our true identity, our true righteousness, he points out those houses upon sand that we so often build. He's seeking to turn us from the folly that we so easily fall into. So let's pray. Father, sometimes we um, don't recognize the power of the flesh. The pervasiveness of the flesh, the persistence of the flesh, and seeking to, to drive us to anything but Jesus. But I thank you for the persistence of your word and your spirit and driving us to Jesus. And so give us ears to hear about Jesus. Hearts that turn from those those idols that we manufacture, that we might be resting in the one who died and was resurrected for us. Jesus. And we desperately need your help to be doing that. because we keep trying to rebuild the things we tear down. So have mercy on us because of Jesus. Amen.